Today's episode is sponsored by H&H Americas. Join us June 21st to 23rd, 2023 for H&H Americas at the Donald E. Stevens Convention and Conference Center in Rosemont, Illinois. H&H Americas is the premier trade show for today's business environment. It's the place where creativity meets business. H&H Americas is a business-to-business trade show with an extended digital marketplace accessible before and after the show. Open to everyone who makes a living in crafts, H&H Americas serves a community without membership requirements. For the first time, the H&H Americas in 2023 will include all craft sectors, extending the event to the entire creative community. For more information, visit hh-americas.com. Thank you so much, H&H Americas. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 230 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about handmade marketplaces with my guest, John Lincoln. John is the founder of Go Imagine. He earned many accolades with his prior technology venture within InsureTech, including Insurance Innovation of the Year and Top 10 InsureTech Leaders of 2017, which led to a company exit valued at over $44 million. Never a stranger to new ventures, in 2020, John entered the world of e-commerce with the launch of Go Imagine, a new online marketplace that's the world's first to donate 100% of profits to charity. As a handmade marketplace with a philanthropic mission, Go Imagine has grown to over 3,000 makers and artists working to grow their handmade businesses while also helping children in need. As corporate marketplaces continue to grow and dominate the e-commerce landscape, John believes it's time there was a marketplace dedicated to providing social good. John Lincoln, welcome. Hello, Abby. It's great to have you. And... We first met in person when you drove over to my town in what had to have been the season's absolute worst rainstorm. Um, <laughs> I was I, impressed that you made it when we met for lunch. I do remember that. I was I was excited when I found out uh, you lived close to me so we could get together in person. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was a crazy storm. So I'm glad to talk to you and hear more about Go Imagine. So if you can just start by telling us what Go Imagine is, I think that would be a helpful baseline. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward uh, marketplace. We're a handmade marketplace. Everything on our marketplace uh, is vetted to be handmade. Uh, I know it's strange in this world to say that our handmade marketplace is handmade, but sometimes you have to make that qualification. Um, Right now, we are only in the USA, so all makers and artists are in the United States. And the big thing for us is our mission is to donate all our profits to charity. Um, This kind of was an idea I, I thought of years ago as marketplaces continue to become more and more popular, right? I mean, it's no secret that marketplaces are what I like to call Wall Street darlings, right? They 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 grow so rapidly through network effects that investors and venture capitalists love getting involved. Um, but 
I've always felt that the power of a marketplace isn't the innovation being created by the company, it's the people on it. It's the vendors and the buyers that create the value of a marketplace. So the, the real basic principle here is what if we took the power of those transactions between buyers and sellers and used that revenue transaction fee to help children in need instead of just lining the pockets of, uh, of more investors. And so um, when you say 100% of profits go to charity, I think some people might read that or hear that and initially be a little bit confused and think, well, that means that a seller isn't going to make any profit. They have to donate it to charity. But that's not how this works. Exactly. Yeah. And and you're absolutely correct. I mean, so the messaging is certainly something that we continue to work on. But the first thing to mention is, yes, the vendors, of course, make their money. In fact, we often tell people that they make more money on Go Imagine than they do other marketplaces because the percentage we take is less. Um, So vendors actually make more. The big thing here is that our operating model is for the profits we make to go to charity. Now, the next question, of course, is for people who aren't as familiar with revenue versus profits, is that we still have expenses, right? We still have, we, so our goal is to still, you know, pay an equitable wage to anybody we hire, reinvest in the marketplace in terms of platform development and all of that. But any profits made above our general expenses are going to, to charity. Okay, so this is above and beyond, but you're not a nonprofit. We are not a nonprofit. We've actually looked into a number of different business models. Um, Newman's Own uh, is one we've looked at a lot. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the salad dressing brand. They also have a lot of other foods, and they've been donating profits to charity for over 40 years. In fact, they've just exceeded $600 million in being donated to charity. Uh, So we've looked at their model, which for for the first 40 years of their existence, they operated like us. Um, We are now a public benefits corporation, which didn't exist when Newman's Own started. Uh, but as a public benefits corporation, what that means is we are a for-profit company, but within our bylaws, in our, our corporate charter, we have to be providing social good under the, the terms of giving all our profits to charity. I see. Okay. So that's really helpful to um, to understand kind of the basics here. Um, and I'd love to let, like go back a little bit and learn more about you and your background. It sounds like you came from an insurance background which some people might think, well, that's odd, like you're not a crafter yourself. So tell us a little bit about sort of college and after college and how that sort of winding path led you to open a handmade marketplace. <laughs> well, winding past is probably the best way you could put it. Um, I've always been somewhat of a serial entrepreneur is kind of how I would, uh, I would put it. I actually, in my 20s, uh, starting in college, I, I was a stand-up comedian. And I actually started uh, running shows throughout New England and booking talent, which led me to eventually open a comedy club in Faneuil Hall, which is in Boston, which I operated for four or five years and uh, and was somewhat successful on that. You know, you can uh, there's some videos out there if you want to see. But um, that was really good. But I always like to tell people in my 20s, like most people in their 20s, I was looking to pay rent and beer money. Right. So so I lived off uh, my businesses, but they weren't scalable. Right. Um, as I started to have children going into my 30s, you know, reality sets in. You got to get a, a more stable job. I got into software, uh, specifically in cloud-based software, which I saw as a place to grow uh, my myself, my, my my profession. Which led me to again being an entrepreneur, thinking about where where I could grow there. So I got into insurance technology, very exciting industry, insurance. 
And, uh, and, and I, I saw a need there to build a new what's called agency management system on Salesforce, which is a pretty large company. Successfully raised funding for that, brought in a number of investors, raised over $8 million over the course of a number of years. Uh, company still exists. You can check it out at Veruna.com, V-E-R-U-N-A. And uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to exit that uh, two years ago, as you mentioned. Um, it was about three years ago that I, I think as I saw my, myself winding down from my last company, I started, like any entrepreneur, thinking about what's next. You know, what's the next thing I want to do? And I always wanted to do something more philanthropic. You know, I always felt like whatever, for whatever reason, my calling was to try and do something that could build a business to help the world. Uh, I think I got a little disenchanted with my last company when I was working, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And the end result, if I succeeded, was to make rich people more wealthy. And, uh, you know, I felt, what if I could use these skill sets to help children in need? So the, the whole idea was the marketplaces. I mentioned that a moment ago. How do I... Build a marketplace that can become what I call an engine for social good. And to be honest with you, I didn't settle on uh, handmade at first. I, I looked at uh, an Airbnb model. Maybe we could do an Airbnb model. Maybe we could do an Upwork to match freelancers. Maybe we could do, you know, uh, an eBay. There's so many different marketplace models out there. A DoorDash. The list goes on. But uh, I ended up talking to a good friend of mine. Uh, who is now a co-founder in Go Imagine. Her name is Stephanie Romke. She is a wonderful artist. She's been a graphic designer by trade for the past 30 years, about 30, 20 years. How old are we? 20, 25 years. <laughs> um, but she's also sold on Etsy. She's sold on her own handmade website. She has sold the craft fairs for decades. She has helped me in my other businesses from a graphic design standpoint. And this is now going back two and a half years that I'm, as I'm doing like any good entrepreneur doing my market research, I sat down with, with Steph and I said, hey, Steph, you know, I'm thinking about this concept of a philanthropic marketplace. Um, tell me about Etsy because I didn't know about Etsy. I didn't know about the handmade world, but I knew that was a, a big opening. And she told me, well, there's a lot of sellers that are frustrated with Etsy, right? And I said, all right, tell me more. And so we kind of, I started to unpack where Etsy is at. And what I recognized was that with their move going public, that their growth trajectory is to, uh, as I see it, slowly leave the handmade space and go into more manufacturing, more international uh, to continue growth, which from my perspective means there's an opening happening in the handmade world. That's when I said to Steph, hey, what do you think about doing this with me? And Steph Romke, who many of our sellers know very well, uh, is now my co-founder and a big part of this because I always say that without her representing the handmade world and the makers and artists and me representing the tech world, uh, there would be part of the business missing. So we really make a good partnership in that sense. Um, and if I could just say one quick aside, Abby, whenever I talk about Etsy, I want to say that I think they are an incredible company. I think they have put handmade on the map. And I always encourage makers and artists to sell on Etsy. They simply have too much organic traffic, I think, for makers and artists to ignore. So um, I tap dance when I mention Etsy because we are not a competitor, as I see it, but a compliment, right? And that's that's an important distinction so that anyone who might be listening doesn't think that I'm in any way called bashing Etsy because that is not the intention at all. Okay, so you're not saying to people this is an Etsy alternative. You're saying this is an Etsy compliment. 100%. I, I would call us, 
yeah, I mean, as as, you, as makers and artists continue to figure out their own path, I think it's important for differentiate um, for for them to diversify, right? And you probably hear that a lot. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, and I think because a lot of makers are disenchanted, as I'll call it, with Etsy, they are just taking their eggs out of the Etsy basket. <laughs> And well, hey, that's great for go imagine. Let's do that. The reality is, I think they that that from a business perspective of maker might not be the best move because there's still business to be had there, right? I always tell people to be honest, stay on Etsy for the organic traffic, keep your products there, make the money. But the question I always ask is, where are you promoting your followers to go? Are you promoting it to go to Etsy? Are you promoting it to go to your own website? Are you promoting it to go to go imagine? And, and I always tell them, you know, Etsy doesn't need your help promoting them anymore. <laughs> People know Etsy. So how can you help lift up another venue to grow into a second source of income for you? So we have a lot of makers and artists that do that now. They, they help promote Go Imagine because they see this as being a second source of income for them versus continuing to promote Etsy, which is how, by the way, Etsy grew when they started. There's a, there's a line uh, that Chad Dickerson, the last CEO of Etsy, said at one point, because of course I've tried to do all my research, and he said actually in a stockholder meeting, he said the reason for Etsy's fast growth was due to makers promoting their own shops. That's how Etsy started. Now, of course, Etsy has so much money now, they have all the funding in the world to do all the big TV ads and commercials and advertising. But in the early days, it was the makers that lifted Etsy up. It truly was. And, uh, and I think makers are now floundering a little bit where to go next, is <laughs> I guess I'll put it. Right. And so um, a lot of people, when, you know, given that advice, don't put all your eggs in one basket, which is very commonly repeated um, when it comes to selling online, would then say, well, what should I do? And, and maybe I should open up my own website, which would probably be on Shopify. Um, there are other e-commerce platforms, but Shopify seems to be the market leader there. Um, but, you know, doing that comes with expense and it also isn't super easy as far as, you know, it is drag and drop, but you have to often add plugins to Shopify to make it do what you want or look the way you want it to look. Um, and then also you're responsible for driving all of the traffic there. Mm -hmm. So in what way do you feel like Go Imagine is a complement or an alternative to somebody going down that route? Yeah, um, and we have an option for that as well, which I'll talk about. What I'll first say to you is that before a maker even considers a website, I think they have to take a step back and consider what they want to be as a business. Right. Um, because there's a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes it's a part time income, sometimes it's a full time income, sometimes it's a hobbyist. And there's nothing wrong with doing it because you enjoy making and maybe you can make a few dollars. Right. Um, when you look at something like Shopify, Shopify is an incredible platform. Uh, it can also get pricey. I mean, I think it starts at $30 a month, but when you really get into it and start doing the add ons and everything else, you're talking. 70, 80, $90 a month, which brings a lot of power to driving your own e-commerce brand. That's why Shopify is used by some really large companies. That said, I do think Shopify can sometimes be, uh, for a maker, bring a sledgehammer when all they need is, you know, a, 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 a screwdriver, right? It's almost, it's almost overkill. Shopify is the known brand because it's so big, but for some makers, it's too much. There are affordable e-commerce sites out there, which I think offer less features, less bells and whistles, but quite frankly, it's more what a maker needs to share online. Um, 
in the case of Go Imagine, we, we did just this. We built our own e-commerce uh, website option for makers, and that gives them their own private website while also being part of our new marketplace for only $10 a month. Our idea is that, you know, for makers who don't need that $30, $40, $50 a month website, but they still want the website to put on their business card, right? They still want to be a craft fair and say, hey, check me out at abbysglassware.com or whatever their custom domain is. They still want to be able to share it on Facebook, on Instagram. That's where we've kind of come out with the, I'll call it, more affordable option that not only gives you a private custom website for less, but then also helps you support our mission to build a, a new handmade marketplace to help children in need. And I like to tell people that we are getting organic traffic. I mean, we can't promise you a full-time income from it, but if we draw you one sale a year, that's one more than Shopify was going to draw you because your own website draws you none. Now, and I know I get long-winded, but I'll just say that if you're a market, if you're if you're an e-commerce uh, seller that wants to really ramp up a brand and become your own big brand, Shopify is the best route. But if you're someone who's looking to make a uh, uh, an income selling on marketplaces while also having your own site to draw people to, you might not need that much. And that's where Mosaic, which is our Go Imagine option, fits in nicely. And so Mosaic is similar in some way to Etsy's pattern. Pattern has been around for a long time on Etsy. Um, it, been, it predates Josh, I believe, um, Josh Silverman, their current CEO. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not really sure how much traction it has, but it does basically offer you a freestanding e-commerce website as an Etsy seller. So uh, could you compare and contrast Mosaic with Etsy, with um, Pattern? Yeah, it's, fu- it's funny you mentioned Etsy Pattern because they are very similar. And the funny thing is, I want to say it was, I don't know, 18 months ago, two years ago, I came out with this idea for Mosaic and I was, you know, out there touting it and people were like, like Etsy pattern. And I was like, what's Etsy pattern? Then I, then I looked it up and I was like, oh, <laughs> my big idea is kind of like Etsy pattern. Yeah, I, I would say that is a very fair comparison if you're comparing what we're offering to, to, uh, to makers. Um, the only thing I would say when, you know, as any businessman trying to differentiate is that um, I would say Etsy doesn't need your money to succeed, right? And if you're someone who wants to uh, build your own business while also helping lift up a new philanthropic marketplace, you know, join the one that you can help lift up to be the next big alternative versus just, you know, more on Etsy and putting more into that basket. Right. And into shareholders' pockets. And so, yeah, yeah. right. The last thing I'll say is I think you mentioned Josh Silverman. He, um, if you read a lot about him, when he came in, he actually end of life a lot of different uh, initiatives Etsy was doing. They had their wholesale website, I think they were building. Uh, the Etsy pattern was one of it. And I think as he's focused more on GMV, which is gross merchandise uh, value or volume, whatever you want to say, uh, he's end of life a lot of things. And pattern does seem like something they have spent less effort on promoting. They're keeping it alive because I think there's probably people on it. They can't just close it. But it does seem like something they're not investing further into. I think they certainly could just close it at some point. And I've wondered for a long time why it's still around because it definitely doesn't seem like something they're investing in. So let's see what happens, yeah, I guess, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I don't want to speculate on Etsy, but of course, like anybody, I keep keep eyes on what's happening. And it seems like Pattern is becoming a bigger afterthought as they look into other growth phases. Yeah. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, 
Darren Stern from H&H Americas. Please note that Craft Industry Alliance is the show's strategic partner. I'm Darren Stern. I'm the show director for H&H Americas. And tell us a little bit about H&H Americas. Well, H&H Americas is going into its second edition. Uh, It is a business-to-business trade event that is trying to unite the crafts industries in North America for three full days, taking place June 21st to 23rd in Rosemont, Illinois. Wonderful. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what we can expect at this year's show. Well, this year, the show is going to be expanding. We are inviting all products in the crafting segment, whether it's paper, scrapbooking, painting, canvases, thermal cutting, t-shirt making, along with what we already introduced this year, the fiber arts being knitting, crocheting, needlepoint, sewing. Our goal is to bring together all of the different crafting segments that go out via retail channels, but with no membership required. We are open to everyone who makes an active living via the crafts. And that means also like content creators too. So it's like retailers, brick and mortar, online retailers, but also other people who make a living in this industry. Correct. Anyone who finds that they make a portion of their living or their full living via the crafting segments, whether you're a professional Etsy maker, a professional craft fair, um, circuit in person, you have a retail store, an e-commerce store, you're an importer, you're a distributor, you're an original manufacturer, um, you're a local educator, you're a professional educator in the space, you're a content creator, you're an inspiring content creator, is that individuals that are in the business of crafts and utilizing and supplying craft supplies. Wonderful. And it's business to business. So it's just to the trade. It's not for consumers. That is correct. It is for business to business only. It is meant for people that make their primary living in the crafting segments and through crafting products. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Darren. And tell us where we can go if we're intrigued and would like to learn more about H&H Americas. Well, you can visit us on our website at hnh-americas.com or just look for us on Instagram or just use a search bar. You will find us in any of those means. Wonderful. And tickets go on sale in mid-March, but booths are on sale now. Thank you, Darren. Thank you so much, H&H Americas. And now back to my conversation with Jonathan. Okay. Um, And then a couple of things. So one question is around the charity aspect. So we mentioned kids earlier. Can you explain um, what charity partner or partners you're working with and how you chose them? Yeah, sure. So um, we have we right now have donated to four different charities uh, over the course of two years. Um, the first one was local to us called Horizons for Homeless Children. And when it comes to how do we choose the charities, it started with me wanting to pick one that would be one I think everybody would feel good about and then also one that through the vetting process really was a good standing good standing uh, charity. I think nonprofits in general, just like with corporate businesses, there can be unethical nonprofits, right? So you have to be careful who you give money to and who you're supporting. Uh, two good sites to always start with, and this is just good for anyone who's donating, is either go to charitynavigator.com or charitywatch.com. Uh, or they might be .org, maybe not .com, but Charity Watch and Charity Navigator are two good starting points. That's where you can see uh, a lot of reviews on charities, but also talks about, because it's a public record, how much is donated, right? People always get that fear of like, you donate to a charity where the CEO gets a $10 million uh, salary and nothing gets actually donated to their cause. So the first step was that for me. And uh, and after that, I, I interview 
the actual charity. I try to visit them if I can uh, to really see what they're doing. And, and Horizons for Homeless Children really ticked all the boxes. And, and what they focus on is um, helping children who are living in homeless shelters have a, a safe daycare uh, for kids under five where they provide uh, not just safety but also teaching, medical care, food, and a safe place to be during the day while their parents who live in the shelters are off trying to find a job and get out of that situation. Since then, we've added charities uh, based on some uh, maker input. We actually picked a charity out in Oregon called Relief Nursery that we have a lot of makers out in Oregon that recommended it, and they uh, they focus on domestic abuse children. Um, there's another one we just uh, partnered with called Curious Learning. They're a little more international, but they are actually a technology nonprofit that are helping children around the world uh, learn to read in impoverished nations that otherwise would never learn to read. And another one was uh, Shine Initiative we gave $1,000 to, and they, uh, they focus on mental health for adolescents. Uh, that's where we're at today. You know, our goal is to involve a more democratic process in the future for giving out charitable donations. I mean, at this stage, we haven't given out so much that the, the democratic side of things really feels necessary, but I definitely want to involve vendor input, and we'll talk about that in a moment, to decide in the future where our charitable donations go. Okay, that's great. And can you talk a little bit about fees? Because you mentioned earlier, in comparison to Etsy, you know, the fees are less, Um, So when we were talking about what it means to donate 100% of profits to charity. So what are the fees? And you mentioned it was $10, I think, a month for the Mosaic website. And I'm imagining that's in addition to, you know, transaction or listing fees on the GoImagine site. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. So we start at $2.50 a month. So it's a subscription to start as low as $2.50. Uh, if you're comparing to Etsy, they have their 20 cents per listing fee. We don't have a per listing fee. We just do a flat monthly fee. So it's $2 and 50 cents for up to 25 products on the platform. Then we have the other couple plans, which go to $5 a month and $10 a month up to mosaic. And with each, uh, with each plan, you get, I would say more, uh, features, you know, with mosaic, you obviously get your own website. Uh, for the two dollar and fifty plan, you uh, you're you're getting the ability to be on the marketplace. Uh, from a transaction fee, we're looking at five percent. You know, at the highest level, so five percent, which is less than uh, the uh, the Etsy fee, which is six and a half, or of course the, the Amazon or the the eBay fees. And as of right now, there are no other like I call it hidden fees. There is the I will tell you, there's the payment transaction fee for Stripe. That doesn't go through us though. That would be through Stripe, which is two point nine percent, like any payment processor. But the fee coming to go imagine is five percent. Okay, great. And often when um, folks in the business world or investment world talk about marketplaces, um, and I'm thinking of you know the um, Etsy earnings calls and things like this, they talk about something called a flywheel. Um, I don't know if you've heard that term, oh, yeah. but um, yeah. but can you explain how a marketplace growth is a flywheel? Yeah, or the flywheel effect is what they say. And um, and this is where having this interview, I love talking to you, Abby, because it's where do you go into business jargon versus uh, versus you know who the audience is. So I met, I alluded to it earlier why Wall Street loves marketplaces. And, and what you're saying here is exactly why. It's called the flywheel effect, or sometimes it's called network effects. And it's the idea of more sellers will bring more buyers, more buyers will bring more sellers, more sellers will bring more buyers. And when you hit what's called the flywheel effect, it starts to grow exponentially on its own. And uh, it all comes from the idea of, think about spinning a really heavy wheel. 
Like, a, think about it in your mind. Imagine a 400-pound wheel that's on an axle that you're trying to turn. At first, it's really hard. You can't really get it going. And then it gets a little easier and a little easier and a little easier. And then by the end of it, with your pinky, you're, pull, you're pulling this wheel and it's flying 100 miles an hour and you're putting no effort into it. And that is what a marketplace is at its core. In the early days, it's that heavy effort to get that flywheel going, really pulling it hard. But when you get the buyers and the sellers all joining together, it becomes exponentially easy to start seeing it spin. And that also creates uh, what they call a moat in terms of business, where now it's hard for a disruptor to even come in to compete with you because you have a flywheel going that doesn't take a lot of effort. Well, someone new has to not only start with that hard effort of starting it, but also compete while starting it versus when you were the only one out there. And, and that concept of the flywheel effect that you hear about is across all marketplaces, whether it's the Airbnb, the Uber, uh, I mean, you, there's tons of them now, right? And they all usually end up getting acquired by Wall Street and going public. Uh, and that's why by the time they go public, they have a flywheel that's going so strong that it's, it's a very good bet on that marketplace. So hopefully that explains a little bit of the flywheel. And where would you say Go Imagine is on that flywheel trajectory at this time? I would say we are, and it's a great question, we are in the early stages. Um, the other thing, if you do a lot of research on marketplaces, they will also talk about the chicken or the egg, right? When they say chicken or the egg, they're talking about which comes first, the buyers or the sellers, right? Because with any marketplace, you need both, but which came first? And for most e-commerce marketplaces, including us, uh, it has to be vendors. I mean, you can't really advertise to buyers to come to a marketplace if there are no products on it to buy, right? So we have invested early in the vendor inventory. Now, I think for a lot of new vendors who are supporting our cause, and we've had some that have left, you know, some that are sticking with us forever, is they'll say like, well, we got to get more buyers. And, and so we're actually transitioning this year coming up. We got some funding we can talk about to start focusing on the buyers, but really, the past 24 months has been solidifying a, uh, a vendor base of inventory. So as we now start to transition to really focusing on buyers, there's not only something for them to come and buy, but a reason for them to come back and a reason to start building on buyer retention. And uh, so where we are is I would say we are, you know, on the vendor side, we are... I think we're in a good spot in terms of ben vendor retention and vendor growth on the buyer side. That is our next big thing that we are really focusing heavily on with some of the new funding we've brought in. Right. And it sounds like um, up until this point, it's been bootstrapped, meaning you've paid for it with savings or, um, you know, kind of self-funded the the company um, and and it also sounds like when you were in the insurance software world you did seek out funding in the past so and mm -hmm. then I know you've secured funding recently to help go imagine grow so maybe you can talk a little bit about what that means and what it was like in a more um, I don't know conventional space and what it's been like to try to get funding in a handmade marketplace where a hundred percent of the profits go to charity <laughs> space. Yeah. They, well, this adventure has been very different than my last one because my last one in terms of being a profitable company was more traditional 
and how I went about it. Um, obviously, everybody knows you need money to make money, right? And and for someone who isn't, you know, independently wealthy, you've got to bootstrap it first and figure it out. You know, with Go Imagine, I started it on my credit card, and I kid you not, I used a credit card to buy the domain and then worked on the business model from there. Um, with my last company, same thing. Started on my credit card, started uh, building an app, and then. Uh, with the last company, I went through the, I'd call it typical route of looking for a professional investor to get behind it, knowing they would get a big return if it succeeds. Uh, it's like that, you know, since the dawn of technology to go out and find an investor for your idea. I was lucky enough in the early days of Varuna to raise $500,000, show growth. We raised another, I uh, can't remember exactly how much when, but it was probably within the next two years of that, raised another couple million. I can't remember the exact timeline, but over the course of five years growing Varuna, we raised, I want to say, seven to eight million dollars in growth. And in each stage, we showed progress, went to our investors, went to new investors, brought on some more money. That, that is the traditional way to grow. And, right. And for anyone who's watched Shark Tank, which I'm sure many people have, um, you typically give up some portion of equity, meaning ownership in the business in order to get that funding. So that funder then sits on your board or serves as an advisor of some kind and has an ownership stake so that later when the company is sold, they earn back what they invested and hopefully, you know, much more. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, you know, you hit the nail on the head and, um, there, there is a danger though here, uh, in, in raising money from, I would call it traditional investors. And the danger is you lose less control of your own company, right? And, and, and that's why someone like Steve Jobs could get fired from Apple. It's specifically because back in the 80s, for anyone who, who's seen any of that, you know, it's because eventually the board and the investors control the company, not the founder. And um, it's funny you mentioned Shark Tank. People always say you should you should go on Shark Tank and I could just imagine if I, I pitched Mr. Wonderful my idea of giving all profits to charity, he, his head his head would explode. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the last company I went through that route, and, and as I alluded to earlier, um, by the end of my tenure at my last company, I did become what I would call an employee at the company I started, right? And, and that's not uh, atypical, if that's the right word, because sometimes founders, as you raise money, you dilute yourself and you dilute yourself and you dilute yourself every time you raise money until you're a minority owner in the company you started, right? Uh, and if anyone's interested, you can kind of see, because I know it's a handmade call, Etsy's funding rounds, because you can see, I always tell people, follow the money if you want to understand why a company makes decisions they make. Because if you follow the money and you see you invested in them, you're going to understand very clearly why they made the decisions they made. Yes. And just thinking back to the early days of Etsy, which we had referenced earlier, and you were talking about Chad Dickerson, who was Etsy's prior CEO before Josh Silverman, and how he said Etsy was built, you know, by sellers sharing the marketplace and promoting it and things like that. But even earlier than that, when Rob Kalin, who's the founder of Etsy, um, you know, started the marketplace yeah. way back in 2005, 2006. Um, you know, he took venture capital very soon, within a year after mm -hmm. founding the company. And so once you do that, right, you've got a venture capital investor who needs at some point to earn out the investment. And so that really started it down the path to Etsy going public in 2015. So 
Absolutely. And, and, to, and to add on to that, um, I think the first call it decade of Etsy, there was the behind the scenes uh, needs and the public needs. And I guess the way I can describe that is from the forefront, it was to help makers and artists build a community for handmade sales, right? So publicly, it was let's build a fantastic handmade community. And they lived up to that mission, right? But the reason they could live up to that mission is because it was also living up to the mission of the investors and board that they wanted to get a 10x return from their investment, right? So as long as the company, as long as the company's mission is living up to the needs of the investors, things are all kumbaya, right? So what you saw with Etsy is they brought in 10 million, then 20 million, then 40 million, whatever it might be. And they kept growing fast, growing fast, growing fast within the handmade world. Everything is kosher. Now, what happens when you start to outgrow that world? And I always use the, uh, the example of, let's just pretend the handmade niche is a $2 billion industry. Well, that's huge. $2 billion, you can run a fantastic company in a $2 billion industry. But what if the goals of the investors is to bring it to a $10 billion company? Well, now there's a conflict. And so as Etsy grew, when they started to peak in the handmade space, and they peaked maybe in 2015, 16, you might know better than I do. But as they peaked in that niche, but the investors needed to see more earnout. They had to make changes based on the investors' desires, not on the desires of the community. And right around that time is when you saw things like, oh, well, now we're going to allow, allow production partners, right? Because, oh, and they can couch it as a way to say, well, it's to help handmade people grow bigger. But reality is production partners is to allow manufacturing into a handmade world, right? As, at least as I see it. It depends on the type of production partner that debate can be held. Um, but then you can see the other decisions they made, like by increasing their take rate, going from three and a half percent to five percent to six and a half percent. That wasn't necessarily because the company wasn't viable at three and a half percent. It's because they have to meet the investor growth, right? And 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 again, I'm not. I want to couch this with Etsy is what they've done to the T has been a hugely successful company. What I think is unfortunate from the handmade community's perspective is your average maker artist doesn't see the background boardroom decisions happening. So while for the first 10 years, it was very much in line with what the handmade community wanted. Well, when that started to diverge, Etsy would have a choice. Do we go with the handmade community? We go with the investors. Well, you go with the investors. You go with those who now own you, right? And I'm not trying to get on my soapbox here, but I think it's good to understand at least why Etsy has made the decisions it has. And uh, that's yeah. the fact that it doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money on Etsy. doesn't mean they're not a wonderful company. They are. At least there's some understanding on why the decisions have gotten made that have been. And let's get to your vetting process, if that's okay. So you mentioned earlier that all of the products on Go Imagine are handmade. And I think there's always this sort of question around policing handmade and defining mm -hmm. handmade. For example, if I go and buy um, a sweatshirt, okay, and then I put three, or even let's just say one rhinestone on the sweatshirt with some hot glue, is that handmade? 
Or does there need to be three rhinestones or 30 rhinestones? Or do I have to make the sweatshirt? Or do I have to make the rhinestones? Or do I have to make the glue? So right, you can kind of walk this line and it's always a question. I mean, that's just one example, but there's many examples similarly um, of, of what is handmade. And you reference production partners, which could be somebody who is silk screening in your studio with you. Um, you know, there's so many ways to sort of define this. So when it comes to vetting sellers to create a truly handmade marketplace, how are you approaching that? And, and this is probably one of the hardest parts of running a handmade marketplace in terms of defining handmade and then being true to it. And truth be told, with Go Imagine, we continue to do that um, with the community. Um, as you mentioned, there, there's different ways to look at handmade. There's what you would consider, I guess I would say, handmade purists, right? Where we have people uh, on our marketplace right now that have an alpaca farm. They shave the alpaca. They make the alpaca wool. Then they create the socks out of it, right? Well, I mean, that is uber handmade. That's like handmade on top of handmade on top of handmade, right? Uh, and then there's the idea of buying a, a manufactured item and in embellishing it with something else to make it your own design, right? That's where you get into like, you know, necklaces, which are beads on a string. Um, what becomes very difficult, I think from our perspective, because we've had these debates internally, we've had these debates in our forums, in our, in our Facebook community, which you can join, or we also have our own social, social app. And one thing that go imagine we don't want to do is also judge what I would call people's art, right? And saying, well, your art isn't good enough. It wasn't hard enough, right? So as of today, our handmade guidelines dictate that um, you can use manufactured supplies, but what you have made out of those manufactured supplies needs to be significantly different enough that it's sold on the merit of that change, right? Um, now, does that mean, in your example, a rhinestone on a shirt? That is where the gray lines start to blur, is the best way I'll put it. One thing we actually have right now is we've got one person doing our handmade vetting, and, and we actually are looking at creating what I would call a handmade integrity team, right? Uh, as we continue to grow, it does get harder. And in fact, I'll mention this, that the bigger you get as a marketplace, the harder it is to police it. You know, when you have 500 products a day getting posted to your marketplace, that's much easier than an Etsy that has 500,000 products getting posted a day. So it's not surprising if things get through Etsy faster, right? Because it's just how do you police that? If they're getting into like AI and, and machine policing, right? But from our perspective, it's our goal is not to get that big, and our goal is to have a handmade integrity team. Um, one change I think we're making, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, is how we do look at production partners right um there there is a difference in my mind that if you are a uh, we've had this debate as well uh there's a difference that if you're a high quality photographer that needs to outsource to a printing lab to have them do high quality framed prints that are drop shipped is very different than if you're someone who bought stock art and then sent it to printify onto a stock t-shirt and had them fulfill it right there there is a line there We've started with no production partners, right? Because what we want to avoid is that stock art going onto a stock item being fulfilled by a warehouse 
I mean, so right now our rule is if the hands of the maker didn't touch it, it cannot be qualified as handmade. I mean, that's from my perspective, that is the first vet of our handmade guidelines. If the hands of the maker didn't touch it, it isn't handmade. The only place I see how that may be changing in the future is when it comes to like high quality photography or high quality art prints versus the the mug that has stock art. So without belaboring the point, where we are today, you can check out the handmade guidelines on our website. Where we are tomorrow is going to be determined by the community as we continue to discuss it. And, uh, and we'll never make decisions on our part carte blanche. It's always going to be involved with the community to make sure that people are in alignment. Even though, quite frankly, there's going to be debate. And then people are going to get angry because people have different ideas of what handmade is. And let's talk a little bit about scale. So you mentioned earlier that there may be, you know, such and such number of makers in the U.S. And so Mm -hmm. that might lead to a marketplace of this size if you're able to reach everybody. But, you know, for shareholders, that may not be enough. And if they're demanding, you know, 10 times that, then you have to make compromises. So, you know, I think that there is an argument to be made that uh, handmade doesn't scale or it's harder to scale. And I think you, you've you got a vision for Go Imagine that doesn't involve massive scale. So Correct. maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we are the uh, antithesis of the traditional way of thinking. And, and what I mean by that is, given our model of all profits go to charity, it has taken off the table any traditional venture capital investors. Uh, to most VCs, they look at us like the Black Plague, right? And I, I have I have venture capital friends. I've talked to them, and they they love what I, we're doing philanthropically. But the idea of investing is just beyond confusing to them. And I do think that part of the problem with our existing corporate world is that growth for the sake of growth has become the primary motive, right? When you look at you know, the stock market in Wall Street, the only way investors get paid out is if you keep growing. And if you've stopped growing, you have failed. Even if you have your uh, $200 million company paying good wages, the CEO is getting a good wage, people are living well, you have failed that year if you didn't grow because without growth, investors don't get more money. Um, that doesn't mean that's how business is supposed to run. It doesn't mean that's how businesses were designed in the first place. Um, getting on my high horse here, I think the American dream has a little bit been corroded by uh, corporate uh, runaway capitalism. Because if you look at the what I think is the traditional American dream, it's to build a business. You came from overseas and you wanted to be a butcher, a candlestick maker, uh, you know, a pharmacist, and you could open up in your town and you could run a good business have a good life to raise your family and be proud of that. Somewhere along the line with industrialization and globalism, it went from the American dream being you can run your own local business in town to sustain your life to, well, you're not a pharmacist anymore. I want to own every pharmacy throughout the country and put every other pharmacy out of business. And if you don't do that, you have failed, right? Uh, If you have not put out every hardware store because you are the hardware conglomerate, you have failed. And as that has transitioned online, the same things happen. This is a long way of me saying that handmade, you're right, doesn't scale in the corporate runaway capitalism world. But handmade 
is an extremely viable marketplace that can stay true to its roots as long as what you're trying to grow is an ethical company to provide for the employees and provide for the handmade artists that are on it. And so our goal from a growth standpoint is to get to that viable place. And so the funding that you've taken is debt funding. So the the funder or funders who provided this new or first really round of funding um, is is they're, they're loaning you that money for a period of time um, in the hopes that Go Imagine will grow in ways that you know you'll obviously be able to to um, repay them. But there's some collateral in a loan rather than. Um, equity in the company. Correct. Yeah. So, so, so we just raised, uh, which is very exciting. We were just able to raise $400,000 to work on taking our marketplace and our platform to the next level. Um, over the past year and change, I focused heavily on trying to raise some funding so we could then push forward and get to the next level. And to what you just mentioned, yeah, we took on debt from what I call angel debt from a, from a philanthropic investor. Uh, they loved what were they see in our mission. They want to support it. Uh, on their end, it is a high-risk investment. I mean, we are uh, a new platform, which means there's risk involved that they could lose it all. Um, but by taking on a debt structure, it means that we retain ownership in the company to continue to stay true to our roots, true to our mission, and grow based on our desire to be sustainable, not at the cost of you know exponential growth. Right. So right. Yeah. And, and, what I, and what the one thing, the last thing I'll mention is that. The beauty is, is that when we get to sustainability, we just have to contain, continue sustainability, which means might be 25,000 sellers, 50,000 sellers. We're not going to hit a million sellers and say, well, now we have to threaten our mission because we need more sellers or need more buyers. We're going to hit sustainability and then not have to push to that next level because we don't have that extra pressure from investors to change who we are just for the sake of growth. Right. So it keeps the um, priorities aligned um, over the longer term. And I wondered if you could talk um, a little bit before we get to your recommendations about um, the Etsy strike. So um, you and I chatted while it was happening. Um, and it, if for those who aren't familiar with it, it was a group of sellers who put together an online petition that got a lot of press coverage. They were really effective in getting every major media outlet from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal to much smaller ones, so digital um, press outlets to cover it. Um, and, and they were really effective at doing that. So I wondered what you thought about the Etsy strike, what it says about Etsy. Um, and, and yeah, just talk a little bit about your perspective on what happened there. Well, first off, I, I, what they did was incredible. You know, if I could find a way to bottle up their public relations ability to be seen on every <laughs> Forbes and NBC there is was amazing. But I, I really think with the Etsy strike, they struck a nerve, Right. And that nerve was struck not because of what just Etsy did, but because of what we're seeing in society from uh, the gig economy, the sharing economy, marketplaces, where you see corporations treating their vendors as cattle, right? And what I mean by that is that you see it in Uber, right, where they're, uh, they try to push down the wages. They try to make them work longer hours. They don't give any health insurance, even though they're pretty much full-time workers, is you're seeing this throughout all these marketplaces because – the the vendors don't have a seat at the table, 
right? They have no control over what's going on. So while these vendors are investing a large part of their life, their business, and who they are in this marketplace, marketplaces are staying true to their investors because the vendors are not their investors. And that is a natural conflict of interest, I would call it. And I think it's taken years in the Etsy front to bubble to the surface. And the Etsy strike, I think, was nothing more than a reaction to all the changes that were happening. Uh, It's debatable how effective that Etsy strike was in terms of making Etsy make any changes. But what it showed was the frustration these sellers have had with the changes, not just in the Etsy world, but it shined a light, I think, on the marketplace model in general. And it also... um, it also, I think, shows what I was talking about before, where Etsy sellers are starting to see what they didn't see before, which was the decisions in the back room of Etsy were never fully aligned with the vendors long term. They only could sustain that until they had to outgrow them. And so that, so that, that I thought was kudos to the Etsy strike on raising that awareness. Uh, for those, and I'll give them a, a, a pitch right now, they have actually spun off now into what's called the Indie Sellers Guild. You can check them at IndieSellersGuild.org. Uh, if you are a maker or an artist, I think you should definitely ch- check out the Indie Sellers Guild. They are they're working to continue representing makers and artists in a fair way, not just in Etsy, but across all platforms. So um, I think I think they're on to some really cool and exciting things. Uh, and, uh, and I'm along to watch them. I, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes for them. I think that... If nothing else, they raised in the public consciousness a doubt that sellers on Etsy are satisfied. And that is helpful yes. in the long term. Absolutely. And and they've also started to show that there's that the traditional marketplace model of the past 20 years might have flaws, right? <laughs> because the internet, although it's been 20, 20, 25 years, it's still a baby. And people are still figuring out how it's affecting society. And, uh, and I think this is where they shine the light that maybe it's not all roses for the vendors on these marketplaces. Right, exactly. Um, well, Jonathan, that was really helpful. I want to get to your recommendations. Um, you have a couple of things to recommend. One of them is a book. And this book is unusual in that it was written in 1904. And it's called yes. As You Think. As You Think. Yeah. So uh, it was written in 1904. And, and I, I'm a believer in I guess what you would call it self-actualization. Uh, I think that your mind is a very p- powerful tool if if you you know grow it and stay healthy and open it. And uh, there have some been books in the past. I'm sure a lot have heard of like The Secret, which had its buzz back in the, the 2000s. But there's one book called As You Think. It was originally called As a Man Thinketh. They they I think rebanded it at some point because it's not just about men. Uh, but it was it was uh, written in 1904, and and it's all about kind of that universal thinking of your thoughts are not just powerful, but they can control a little bit of your destiny. Be between having negative thoughts and positive thoughts, and, and one thing they talk a lot about in this book is the term "peace be still" to always remind yourself that no matter what's happening in the chaotic life you're living to take a step back think calm down and then reset and uh and one thing i loved about this book as you mentioned it was written in 1904 this is not a new age thing this isn't something like someone came up with this idea and now it's the 
next uh, you know trend on on BuzzFeed. This is something that is tried and true in terms of thinking that people for centuries have uh, have uh, have believed. And and for me, it's just a good reminder that book. If you read that book, it's a reminder to 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 do what it says in terms of your self-actualization and thinking because I think in society there's a lot of negativity uh, and I think that negativity is breeding through social media and and uh, you know TV and everything that we're in this book is that take a step back reset and uh, and think positive that's great and you wanted to recommend your favorite movie which stars Denzel Washington yeah, so you asked for three recommendations. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I can recommend some stuff. Uh, my playlist. Yeah, so the book I recommend. But uh, yeah, I mean, anything Denzel Washington's great. I mean, my favorite is Remember the Titans, one of the best movies of all time. Uh, again, one that shows social struggle along with success. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't seen Remember the Titans, I haven't. So good to know. Remember the Titans? No, I'm. I'm. Uh, anyone who listens to the show knows. Like, I don't watch anything, and so I'm completely like, it, it's it's pretty bad. Um, but <laughs> I mean, that movie is uh, it's 25 years old. I know. One of my favorite movies of all time. I'm very behind. Um, okay, and then you <laughs> wanted to recommend um, a show on Netflix that my husband is actually watching as well, called Manifest. Yeah, I mean, for someone who's looking to binge watch something that uh, that is good, uh, I just started watching that last week. So remember the times I saw 25 years ago, but recently Manifest. Awesome show, binge-worthy, I would call it. And uh, if you like the show Lost back in the day, very much in, in that vein of, of uh, craziness. That's great. Well, those recommendations help us to get to know you a little bit better. So I'm glad that you recommended them. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you, John. I always love talking to you, Abby. Thanks for having me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by H&H Americas. Join us June 21st, 23rd, 2023 for H&H Americas at the Donald E. Stevens Convention and Conference Center in Rosemont, Illinois. H&H Americas is the premier trade show for today's business environment. It's the place where creativity meets business. H&H Americas is a business-to-business trade show with an extended digital marketplace accessible before and after the event. Open to everyone who makes a living in crafts, H&H Americas serves a community without membership requirements. For the first time, the H&H Americas in 2023 will include all craft sectors, extending the event to the entire creative community. For more information, visit hh-americas.com. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.